Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. WorldCoin is a new global digital currency that will launch by giving a free share to every human on Earth, says the website of a startup funded by some of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley. The company's blog says, quote, If a cryptocurrency were adopted at scale, it would vastly increase access to the Internet economy and make applications possible that are now unimaginable. It goes on, quote, Unfortunately, less than 3% of the world's population currently participates in cryptocurrency networks. To rapidly get its new currency into the hands of as many people as possible, WorldCoin will allow everyone to claim a share of it for free. The company says that for this to happen, it had to ensure that, quote, every person on Earth can prove that they are indeed human, not a bot, and that they have not claimed their free share of WorldCoin already. This challenge is the long-standing problem of proving unique humanness without intruding on privacy. How can you prove you are you without having to tell us anything about yourself? Unquote. There is a growing literature and practice around how to equitably collaborate with traditionally marginalized communities to build better technology. A pair of investigative reports into WorldCoin's launch may well serve as the basis for an instructive case study in what not to do. The first report, by Richard Nieva and Aman Sethi at BuzzFeed News, was published April 5th. It's titled, Inside WorldCoin's Globe-Spanning, Eyeball-Scanning, Free Crypto Giveaway, the Sam Altman-founded company WorldCoin says it aims to alleviate global poverty, but so far it has angered the very people it claims to be helping. The second report by Eileen Guo and Adi Rinaldi at MIT Technology Review was published April 6th. It's titled Deception, Exploited Workers, and Cash Handouts, How WorldCoin Recruited Its First Half a Million Test Users. The startup promises a fairly distributed cryptocurrency-based universal basic income, so far, all it's done is build a biometric database from the bodies of the poor. I had the chance to talk to both pairs of journalists separately last week. The BuzzFeed team was first to publish, so they are up first here. I am Richard Nieva. I'm a senior uh, reporter at BuzzFeed. I am Aman Sethi. I'm Richard's colleague. I'm also a senior tech reporter at BuzzFeed News. What is WorldCoin and who is behind it? Sure. So uh, WorldCoin is a crypto company. It was started by Alex Blania, as well as Sam Altman, who most people know as the former president of Y Combinator. And basically, they've got a pretty lofty goal, which is to give every single person in the world uh, a share of cryptocurrency. But to do it, they've got to scan their eyes into this biometrics device called the Orb. So how did you pick up on this story? What was the sort of method here? How did you get into WorldCoin? I think Richard first first heard of it. And we we had an edit meeting where Richard talked about it. And we were all like, this is an absolutely crazy story. And at that point, I had sort of been dabbling around on the crypto beat. And so our editor suggested that the two of us team up on this story. And Richard sort of did this fantastic job of tracking down a lot of the orb operators and sort of set up networks with them. And then I, in the meantime, was looking more at the crypto and the privacy and, and the other the other parts of the story. And then that was in the beginning. And then I think once we got into it, we were just, you know, swapping sort of contacts back and forth. And then we were both basically doing all parts of the story. So it it, it began as us thinking, okay, we're going to look at these two lanes. But I think once the story took off, we were sort of both all over it. WorldCoin had like a pretty big splash once they first announced the company. And there was that news cycle. It was really our editor who was like, we should, we should take a closer look at this. It's this company that's got this really ambitious goal, right? You know, it's you were talking about like universal basic income, but we were curious about, okay, so there's that goal, but what does this actually look like on the ground in like implementation? What we found was that it's it's very messy. Take me a step back and let's let's talk about that mission and let's also talk about where the operation has got to, you know, also the investors, the, the kind of effort as it is today. Can you give me a snapshot of where WorldCoin is on its path? So WorldCoin seems to be in a in a pretty good place. Um, I think that as as Richard mentioned, there is Sam Ortman, but apart from that, there is 
Anderson Horowitz, which is like the kind of preeminent investor in the crypto space right now. Um, there are also companies such as Three Arrows Capital, which is again something that's been investing quite widely. Interestingly, the company is headquartered out of Germany. Berlin is one of the major centers where they're uh, headquartered. There's also some uh, German VC money because there's been a very interesting sort of hardware sort of obsession that's come out of Germany. And so, so I think there's been there's a lot of there's some German capital that's come in. I think uh, Alex is based in Alex Blanier, the CEO, is based in Germany. So that's that's one piece of the puzzle. Um, it's also a very well financialized company. They've raised quite a bit of money. The last time they raised money, it, they raised it at a valuation of about a billion dollars. Subsequently, there was a, there, there was a report in the information about how the tokens were valued at three billion. When we spoke to Worldcoin about it, they sort of said that was a leak and that information was incorrect. But essentially, maybe an ease, a good way to think about Worldcoin at the moment in the ecosystem is that some of the biggest names in crypto wanted to succeed. And so, for example, FTX and, uh, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried, they are investors in Worldcoin as well. And all of that adds up to a very well-connected startup that has all the right people backing it and has enough money. Worldcoin is essentially trying to solve a particular problem that folks in the crypto world regard as one that would be very valuable to solve. Right. So they call this proof of personhood, which is basically how do you verify that somebody is an actual living, breathing person without giving away anything else about their identity? And this is a big opportunity for people in, in, in the blockchain era, as um, Worldcoin described it in a confidential deck that we saw. It's, it could be the new CAPTCHA. And you know that is potentially something that like every, you know every business could use and so that's really the the opportunity here for them and that's so important because what they're trying to do is connect assets or the behavior of a particular individual to a blockchain without having that that person's identity involved right maybe one way of thinking about this is what an early 2008 paper calls accountable pseudonyms which is that the paper kind of, it, it was quite an influential paper where it basically argued that the obsession with identity is actually a red herring. We don't need to know your identity. We just need to know you exist, right? So this is what the blockchain is very interested in because sort of ideologically, the blockchain is obsessed with anonymity on the one hand, but also verification and transparency on the other hand. So having this idea of an accountable pseudonym essentially saying that you can come up with whatever identity you want in front of me, but then you're stuck with it, uh, was very kind of crucial to solving. One way is, as Rich said, capture. The other way is anonymous KYC. That's another way to think about it. So the WorldCoin solution to this is to capture people's irises, to go out and literally capture a unique biometric signature and to uh, create a hash of that signature, as I understand it. And you mentioned this orb. Can you describe the orb for my listeners? I hope they'll go and check out your story and look at pictures of it in situ in different parts of the world. It's a silver ball. It's a, a little bit smaller than a basketball. We actually didn't go too into the, 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 the background of the design, but yeah, we did mention it's, it was designed by a former Apple designer who was a protege of Johnny Ive. And like one of, one of the things that didn't make it uh, into the story is that the scanner is at an angle and there, it's got this band around it. Um, the band is at the exact angle of the axis of, of the world. And an early, an early prototype was, uh, was dark blue to resemble the oceans, you know? So it's, it's this very like Silicon Valley thing of like these, these little Easter egg things that like, no one will ever really ask about. But it's there because it's supposed to tell this like larger story of of uh, of what the startup is supposed to represent. It looks ridiculous. Um, it's this sort of silver basketball sized uh, object that you know essentially these individuals, these orb operators, uh, as Worldcoin refers to them, are taking into towns and villages and literally collecting irises. We we talked. We asked the uh, the company about that. It's by design, you know. They they wanted something that would attract attention in a crowd. Um, we we talked to one orb operator who, uh, while people were passing by, 
he would ask people to guess what the orb was. You know, and he would be like, do you think this is a disco ball? And then that would kind of spark the conversation. So it was definitely a, a, a deliberate decision for them to make it look so kind of weird looking, you know, to, to, to put it bluntly. I lobbied aggressively for the piece to be headlined shiny crypto balls, but I was shot down, uh, a decision I regret to this day. I suspect that that would have been a very BuzzFeed uh, friendly title, um, <laughs> but I appreciate you telling me that particular piece of trivia. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about the role of these orb operators, because to some extent, the story hinges on them and their experience of working with this company. This is kind of like a labor story. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the orb operators are these contractors. They're, they're not employees of, of, of WorldCoin. Uh, they made that very, very clear who basically their job is to go out into the world and scan people. We, we go into it a little bit in the story. They describe, WorldCoin describes it as like a, an entrepreneurial endeavor. If you want to be an orb operator, you got to apply. You've got to create this video interview uh, where you tell them what your plan would be to, to sign up people. And then you, know, you, you start signing up people. If you reach your targets, you can get more orbs. If you don't reach your targets, they take the orb away from you. Um, and they recommend that you uh, hire people under you so you can cover more ground. Just to kind of stay with that, if I may, one of the things that really interested me about this model was that prior to joining BuzzFeed, I did a lot of reporting on India's Aadhaar system, which is basically India's massive biometric citizen database. So it has over a billion entries at this point. And the initial model that Aadhaar followed to enroll people was essentially the exact same model that WorldCoin has been following. And again, that was rolled out by a man called Nandan Nilekani, who's kind of like the Sam Altman of India. So the idea was very much to hire independent contractors, build a software, like a backend dashboard software system. They hand you the biometric, they give the operators biometric kind of capture devices, and then they essentially it goes out into the wild, right? And so when, when Richard sort of came back and was like, this is how they're doing it, it reminded me of the fact that in India, there were massive, massive problems with this rollout. So there were technology problems, there were verification problems, there were massive problems of fraud. And we kind of saw a similar pattern rollout with WorldCoin. So you can understand the logic of such a rollout because it scales up really, really, really fast, where you pay people per sign up, particularly in low-income countries, and they essentially just go out and, and harvest. And um, that's essentially what we saw happening in WorldCoin. And it seems to have many of the problems that Aadhaar had. In one case, as we found in WorldCoin, you know, law enforcement and police and government people were quite suspicious of what was going on. We recorded at least one anecdote of someone who was you know, detained by the police because they were like, what are you doing here? There were problems with local law in terms of are you actually allowed to do this in a place like Kenya, for instance, where they've just got a new data privacy law. You know, you do kind of have this little aside in the piece, which I found both necessary and also in some ways evocative of the the whole thing somehow, this little aside around colonialism. You take us back to Britain, administrators in the 1850s in India. Yeah, so biometrics has been a, a sort of obsession of mine for some time. And there was this chap called William Herschel, and he was a British administrator. And one of the kind of problems which I guess anyone following, you know, microaggressions in the workplace will be acquainted with was British administrators were like, all these Indians look like each other. And so how do we tell one apart from the other? And so they, this guy basically tries to, they're constantly looking for ways to fix identity. And interestingly, in, in, in pre-colonial India, the idea of identity is also a, a very different idea. So it was not unusual if you, for example, ask someone to come to court to serve as a witness for a road accident, they wouldn't show up, but they would send their brother instead. And then when they were asked, but you said you were a witness, and he would say, yes, my brother told me everything he saw. And there was a way that the idea of who is a human or who is a person or who is the individualized self um, was different in different cultures. So when you have the British coming in and they start saying, okay, we've got to figure out a way to really fix ideas of identity, biometrics actually comes out of this this moment so so he grabs a guy he he puts ink on his hand and he stamps it on a piece of paper and as he writes in his memoirs his idea the, the british administrator's idea was to basically 
terrify him in some way of saying, I have taken from you a immutable proof of your selfhood. And what's interesting is that Herschel and, and, and Francis Galton were, you know, in conversation with each other. Francis Galton, in some ways, a father of modern eugenics. So there's a, there's a long, weird history of, of this obsession with fixing biomarkers to people. And you say this is evocative of Silicon Valley's history of ignoring sensitive cultural issues and skirting regulations. Yeah, I mean, like w- one other thing that I think we found that sums it up pretty pretty well is that one of the WorldCoin executives, and he was he was on this retreat that we mentioned in the story. But if you go on the about page uh, or the about section of his LinkedIn page, he's got a quote by General George Patton, and it is, I'll read it. A good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan tomorrow, which is just kind of a micro, you know, a macro way to look at all of this, this kind of like Silicon Valley move fast, break things, you know, we're going to try this out now. And uh, if it doesn't work, then sorry, uh, we'll, we'll try to fix it. You also talked to a number of different experts. I see quotes from a senior staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Internet Ethics Program Director at Santa Clara University's Markala Center for Applied Ethics. What were some of the reactions to this reporting from some of the experts that you spoke to? They all thought it was um, deeply problematic. You know, some of, some of the experts had heard about this before we, um, we brought it to them because it had launched um, before we asked about it. And it, it had already, especially like um, the, the professor at Santa Clara University, had already been keenly interested in it. She was concerned about this idea that that this crypto company was, you know, was was offering crypto for biometrics, and so you know the the, the anger for for some of these folks was already was already there. Experts also expressed just befuddlement at the project, and were sort of surprised at at just the 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 sort of cavalier approach that was being taken with with something as sensitive as biometrics. One of the things that you commonly say about biometrics and and people who are proponents of biometrics say the thing about biometrics is that they're passwords that you can't lose and you can't change. And that's also one of the biggest criticisms of it, which is it's a password you can't change. So if it's a password that that gets out there, you're kind of with it. WorldCoin tries to work around that because they don't use the biometric itself. They use a hash generated on the biometric. So one could conceivably, if say that hash is in some way compromised, you could regenerate a hash. So, so that is a kind of, you know, a way that one can work around it. And I guess one thing to sort of think about is that the problem that they're trying to solve is something that a lot of people are actually very interested in trying to solve, which is how do you protect privacy, but at the same time establish personhood? So, so the way that they have chosen to do it is perhaps the most kind of almost like cartoon villain uh, dystopic with like this big kind of glowing orb. But the problem itself is something that I think is going to become a more and more urgent question as Web3 gets more and more sort of sort of popular, I guess. So WorldCoin, to their credit, have just, I think, two days ago or a couple of days ago announced that they're open sourcing everything. They've announced that they'll be open sourcing the blueprint of the orb. They've said that the algorithms will be open to people and there will be ways that people can adopt it. And they've also said that, you know, it's going to be a license. It's going to be an open license that forbids you from using it for, you know, surveillance or, or, you know, stuff that invades privacy. But the point is that if you've got a bad actor and you've got a state that's a bad actor, and maybe you've got a state that's a bad actor that doesn't really care about IP and licenses, having this technology out there means that it's something that people will use as they see fit. And that may not always be how the rest of us would like it to be used. The founders even promised that they were intending to turn this into a nonprofit. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so it'll it'll be a nonprofit and it'll be decentralized, but they haven't really given any more detail other than that. And that's kind of one of the big things that we saw with this company, which is that like they're making a lot of promises and they're saying that they will uphold those promises at some point later um, and haven't really determined when. Whenever we brought a lot of these allegations to them, the 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 big thing that they would fall back on was that you know, we're in testing. This is this is all just a big field test right now. And so everything that you're complaining about now, everything that people are complaining about now, we're going to fix that. And we're just learning and iterating as we go along. But, you know, at a certain point, the testing 
has, has got to end. Um, and while you're in testing, you know, people are um, complaining that they're being harmed. And so they are really, you know, falling back on this, this idea that for now, it almost doesn't count. We're, we're trying to figure this out um, and we'll, we'll get better. It really does seem like what has become the Silicon Valley money. You've got this extraordinary amount of risk capital that you can spend on trying to innovate or change perhaps how something in society fundamentally works. And you really have ultimately no accountability for whatever those outcome might be along the way. Right. And going back to the point you made about this being a labor story, you know, in the reporting, that's that's really what we found. You know, we found we found workers that felt like they were being exploited, uh, wage issues that they were complaining about. We found technology issues. At one point, the 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 workers even held collective action. He held what they called a strike, where they stopped working for uh, for a couple of days. And so, I think that was kind of the like the driving force of this story, which is like how people are actually being affected by by this thing. You know, in a country in Africa where the decisions are being made far away in Europe and the U.S. On what continents or in what nations did you speak to orb operators? Sure. So we, we spoke to orb operators in Africa, uh, Europe, and Asia. And so I feel like we did really get this global view of, of what was going on. And, you know, the, the criticism for that WorldCoin has been hearing is that, like, you know, oh, you're going into these poor countries and kind of wreaking havoc there. Their response to that is, well, we, you know, WorldCoin is, is, a, is a world coin, you know, it's, it's for everybody. And so we're, we're trying to go everywhere that includes rich countries and poor countries, you know, but it, it still doesn't kind of get away from, from the fact that in, in the poorer countries, a lot, a lot of things are being destabilized and people are being, you know, be, being harmed on the ground there. One of the things that we, in fact, asked them when they said, you know, one of the, one of the key things about Kenya's new data, data protection law, for instance, is the question of informed consent, which is that if you're saying that you're consenting to something, you usually know what you're consenting to. So we asked them that if you are looking out for everyone, have you translated your privacy policy and your consent forms and your terms of use into local languages across each of the territories where you're operating? And they sort of hedged on that initially. And then when it came to Kenya, they said, well, you know, English is one of the official languages of Kenya except that we spoke to a program officer at Access Now who is based in Nairobi. And he said that most Kenyans actually speak Kiswahili. And if I was to be honest, it takes me a while as someone who's been speaking English all his life to really break down what these data consent in terms of use policies actually mean. So to, to expect that people in rural Zimbabwe or rural Kenya or rural India would kind of, you know, look at it and be able to break it down is just, just seems completely baseless. They also then claimed that, well, actually the, the role of the data uh, of the orb operator is to explain the, the implications of the data consent policy to each person they scan. And that also did not seem like a, either a good solution or be a believable answer because uh, my experience, again, in reporting in these places is it's highly unlikely that the guy was going to be like, now I'm going to break down this 25-page dense legal document for you in a simultaneous translation into your local language. That that seemed really, really unlikely. So that was another thing that sort of struck us when we were thinking about, you know, the the global scale. And as Richard talked about, the the harm and and the problems that are being created in each of these different countries by kind of adopting this sort of one size fits all approach to two things. Yeah. And, and to just one thing to follow up on Amon's point was when we interviewed the CEO, you know, we got the, 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 the top view of kind of what, what they wanted to be going on. But when we talked to folks on the ground who were actually doing the, the distributing, you know, one person told us that Worldcoin told them, you know, just say that it's free money, you know? So it's, it's this very kind of disconnect between what, what the company like wants to be happening and what is actually happening. These people walking from village to village with a shiny orb, collecting irises and handing out little chunks of crypto. That is worth nothing right now, by the way. I think that's, that's the big thing. That, that's, that's like why people are so angry because one, you know, one person said that they feel robbed because they, you know, they feel like they're actually like they've got their part of the transaction and they haven't been paid back. One of the things that actually jumped out at me, and again, 
And this was perhaps one of the more interesting parts of the conversation with the CEO. And I'm going to have to give a little bit of context here. So this is a slightly longer anecdote, which is that the way the system works is that now they have an app. So you download the app, the app generates a QR code, the orb scans your eyes, you show the QR code to the orb, it creates a, a loop, and then, you know, your app starts working as a wallet and, you know, all the, all the things that are supposed to happen then fall into place. Prior to this, they had a web-based dashboard where essentially the orb operator had a web-based way of logging people in. And essentially it was linked to people's email IDs. Now, in a lot of places, people didn't have email IDs. And as we found, the orb operator was then creating email IDs for people. And so we asked a question where we said, okay, so you're in rural, say, India, someone doesn't have an email ID. I create an email ID for you. I scan your, your eyeballs. Your email ID and your eyeballs are linked. Your crypto is going to be linked to your email. I have the password to your email because I've created the account for you. And you're probably never going to log into that email. So what stops you from actually just harvesting this thing endlessly, right, as an orb operator? And to their credit, they, they accepted that and said that we talked about what's basically called a social hack, right? Where you're not hacking the technology, but you're actually hacking the social framework that the technology is being applied in. And that was something that I found very fascinating. And what's interesting is that WorldCoin has been constantly tweaking the incentives that these orb operators get. And one reason for this, of course, is again, the classic terrifying Silicon Valley idea of let's keep tweaking incentives and see how that changes human behavior. And so you've got these guys who essentially are looking at human interactions as data points without actually considering the human at the center of it. So a lot of like Rich's really great reporting was about how these incentive structures were creating a kind of almost financial whiplash for the orb operators. And you also think about these changing incentive structures as a way for WorldCoin to essentially be trying to minimize social hacking, except that this stuff is, it just gets really complicated really fast, especially when you scale it to the size of the world. Sam Altman in particular has a kind of uh, you know, view of the future um, that he has shared both in essays and on Twitter of cornucopia around the corner of technology uh, solving our problems of, you know, sorting through problems like poverty, uh, et cetera. And, you know, this, this project is clearly a part of that worldview and, and that, that effort. As you look at crypto, as you look at projects like WorldCoin, do you see that vision at all in this? Is, that, is, is there something worthwhile here that we're being grouchy about that perhaps we ought to, you know, be a little more uh, forgiving? It's interesting because you, you talk about Sam Altman. This part didn't make it into the story just because the story was was so long. But if we're being grouchy, it's it's not just us. You know, it's also the the orb operators themselves. Um, there there was there was one anecdote where um, orb operators had been sharing this an uh, this link to an article about uh, a Sam Altman company that had just gotten funding, and it was an AI company. And amongst themselves, they were wondering if data from WorldCoin was was being given to this other company, you know, to help train its its systems. And to be clear, there's there's no indication that that's happening. Um, you know, there's there's no indication that that any data is being siphoned off to this company or any other company. But the fact that there was this kind of this speculation and this this wondering from the people who are actually doing the job it just kind of illustrates how how distrustful things had become between the the workers and its contractors and so you know i i think the like the the scrutiny is is deserved you know and especially because the people that are actually doing the work are are asking these questions as well i do feel like there is a general grouchiness around crypto right which i suppose part of it is the is the sort of you know ongoing tech clash um but i do feel like to say WorldCoin is an example of how everything is wrong with crypto. You could easily say WorldCoin is an example of how everything is wrong with capitalism or everything is wrong with the modern world. Or So I would probably not use this as an example to be like, this proves that crypto sucks. Because I think that crypto sort of in this 
very interesting space where a it's it's moving across many different sectors at the same time it has an interesting diversity of people who are interested in it it has the classic problem of you know the whales of of the big guys coming in looking at any interesting application and saying we're going to take this and we're going to make it our own i have a theory that 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 i expound when i've given the chance so you're the lucky one today justin is that many technologies essentially follow an arc of what i call an entropic impulse followed by an ectropic culmination and, and and the fascinating thing about writing about technology is to measure essentially the distance traveled between the initial moment of entropy and the kind of ectropic collapse and i think with with crypto we're we're watching it move around it's moving to its credit it is thus far doing a far better job of navigating wall gardens than say web two did and it has massive problems and there are all kinds of things that are happening but i think that it still has crypto broadly i think that 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 story is going to go on and on and on in like weirder and weirder places right well you've certainly taken us to one of the weirdest places that i could imagine uh, with this story so i want to thank you both for it thanks so much for having us thank you enjoying this podcast consider subscribing go to techpolicy.press/podcast and subscribe to your favorite podcast service while you're there sign up for our newsletter at worldcoin life moves fast says the company's website. The company offers its employees in the U.S. and Germany daily catered lunch and dinner upon return to office, a home office setup stipend, and unlimited time off. The experience of the orb operators is rather different. In MIT Technology Review, Eileen Gua and Adi Rinaldi look closely at the security issues related to the orb and WorldCoin's collection of data. And Adi gives us a first-hand account of observing orb operators collecting scans in Indonesia. My name is Eileen Guo. I'm a senior reporter for features and investigations at MIT Technology Review. Uh, I'm Adi Ranaldi. Um, I'm a freelance journalist based in Jakarta, Indonesia. Let's just start in Indonesia. You spoke to fifteen uh, people. What was your sort of sense of of what this company was up to there, and what were the experiences that were recounted to you? Yeah, at that time, uh, we I haven't heard about uh, what coin, and I just kind of find it difficult to find it on social media or on, on Google. So I just kind of, you know, check their social media, like Instagram and Facebook. And then I just kind of reach out to whoever that uh, that commented on their post. So yeah, so I, I came up with this use. Uh, he was the one that I spoke to, I guess, uh, back in February. And yeah, just kind of show up uh, in his neighborhood and spoke to a few people. And as we mentioned in the story that I think it's a, uh, lower income community and i found it very strange that you know a startup company from uh san francisco and ended up uh, in sukabumi regency in west java so yeah that's that's our that's our first question uh at the beginning of our reporting so yeah just kind of start from there you know so and maybe to back up a little bit to report this story um i put together a team of four reporters including myself and audi um as well as lujain elsedig in sudan and antonetta rusi in kenya and between us we were speaking to and and trying to speak to as many people that were involved with worldcoin as possible so that's you know orb operators that's um people that were scanned people that were recruited to be scanned and then chose not to people that were working in some way uh for or on behalf of the company we just we found so much and you know Audi in particular like he attended a recruitment drive and that was actually how we originally started the story um he went to a drive at a school where kids that were under 16 which is 
WorldCoin's age of uh, for in their terms of service of, of who's allowed to to use this, where they were being scanned. We wanted to start the story with use because he was asking the central question that we had, which was, why are they really scanning our biometrics? You know, so we thought that he was a really interesting guide. And as Adi talked to him more, and we went back to him like so many times um, with so many questions. And finally he was like, look guys, what do you guys really want to know? Like what's going on here? And when Adi said that, he invited Adi to go back. And that's when Adi had the conversations with officials that were involved. Um, So he was kind of our guide for this mystery, essentially, of what is actually happening, why is this happening, and what is WorldCoin trying to do? So let's focus on this experience at the school in particular. Um, You write that you visited an Islamic high school in West Java, and you encountered there, as you just said, teens, people, people underage. What happened at the school? What did you see there? Yeah, at first, I just contacted WorldCoin on Instagram saying that, Hey, uh, can I get scanned? So where's where's the where's the next venue uh, for the recruitment? And then they just said like, uh, oh yeah, we're going to have this uh, recruitment event, scanning event uh, at the Islamic high school. So I just you know kind of go there uh, on a rented car, and then I I just said that I just want to observe because they don't want to be interviewed at that time, like you know like company policy. So I, yeah, so I just kind of you know observe. I attended the class, the work, the workshop. They said it was a workshop on cryptocurrency, but it was actually, um, you know, like a scanning process. And I think the, the most interesting part is that uh, the school, I mean, like the, the principal, they didn't know that it was actually a scanning process. They, they all know it was like a um, workshop uh, for students. So, yeah. And then I just kind of spoke to some high school students and all of them are, I believe they were 15 at the time. They were just like a um, 10th grader. And I spoke to a um, few of the operators, but it was actually off the record. So I just kind of you know, convinced them to, to talk about their experience. This isn't the only place where WorldCoin is using schools, using high schools in order to get its word out. Yeah, it was in their own words. Uh, it was the final scanning events in you know in, in that particular uh region they're planning to move out to another city because um you know they, they don't see any any chance to recruit more on students so yeah i was pretty much uh i think yeah i was like lucky enough to finally witness their their process and you got some sense of a relationship between other government officials and potentially with school officials. I'm trying to kind of tease out this part yeah. around um, the the relationship between the uh, local official uh, who is essentially kind of taking, um, well, a bribe from WorldCoin uh, in order to you know be a fixer and sort of make sure that these events uh, take place. Is that the right way to characterize it? We were very careful not to call it a bribe, but... There was money that was changing hands as multiple people that were involved, including the orb operator himself confirmed. The guy who, who was first uh, brought the world coin to Indonesia is actually a son of a, you know, like a prominent figure in, in the community, which happened to be the friend of a, you know, like a village leader. And then the mother said that uh, his son is, uh, working for a German company and that they want to distribute free money for the community uh, without any, you know, uh, string attached. So just like pure free money. And then, yeah, so the village leaders just said like, okay, so let's set up scanning events in this village. And then the word got spread pretty quickly. According to WorldCoin, it was like um, there were like 20 village uh, who got scanned. So yeah, it, it's a strange relationship, I think, with the official so the company is, uh, in some ways, it, it seems like it's sort of portraying itself in this community, perhaps as in others, as a kind of philanthropy or a civil society project. I noticed in the documents that you provided from WorldCoin, they quoted the Orb Operator Code of Conduct, and there was a, a phrase there that WorldCoin is a civil society project. 
Do you think that's what was going on there, that they were portraying themselves as a kind of philanthropy and in the this moment of, of the pandemic and economic disruption? Is that part of what was happening? Uh, obviously, the, you know, the, the people uh, see it that way, I guess. But I don't know if WorldCoin perhaps marketed them, themselves as, you know, being a philanthropy company. I don't know. But they're just like, uh, you know, they, they got the, the, the big banner saying like, uh, get your free money, claim it here kind of thing. So it was like a yeah I think that was the that hooked people uh for being scanned I guess one of the challenges of our reporting has been that the way that worldcoin has set up its operations around the world is with the possibility of plausible deniability on all things right because the people that are operating on their behalfs in these countries are uh independent contractors at best. Um, and that's the country level orb operator that then subcontracts out to people underneath them. Sometimes they subcontract out and, and on and on it goes. But I do think the language that they use is really striking, including, I, I'm glad you picked up on that, the civil society project in, in one of the documents that they gave us. But from the beginning, when you know the co-founder, Sam Altman, who's this really big figure in Silicon Valley as the former head of Y Combinator, um, the head of OpenAI, a very influential uh, AI company. He described wanting to create a universal basic income that was based on cryptocurrency. So all throughout, there were these undertones of AI for good and do-gooder intentions. And whether or not they you know, were intentionally encouraging their orb operators to market this as a charity, you know, kind of event. That's the part that we cannot say with certainty, but that's certainly how it was perceived. One of the officials, the the high school, I think it was high school um, principal, who's also a village official, who was given some money by his, his higher ups, he described that, you know, previously at the school where they were doing the scanning event, the government would hold giveaway events because of the pandemic. And so there was so much confusion among the people that were coming of what is this exactly? Is this, you know, the words um, that were used in, in translation into English were the equivalent of social assistance giveaway. And so it, it certainly, it certainly all seems like this is doing good. But again, can we say with certainty that this is what WorldCoin HQ intended? It's hard to say. It, it seems like what they were really doing was encouraging as many signups as possible. And they've since said that they've changed that. So it's not just as many signups, but quality signups. But that was not reflected, at least in our interviews. I do want to just pause on the kind of government official. I mean, you do talk about the possibility that the types of uh, gratuities, uh, I think you call it cigarette and coffee money that was changing hands, whether that might have been illegal under uh, Indonesia's anti-corruption, anti-bribery laws. And should note, the company says it launched an investigation and says significant aspects of the allegations you raise are incomplete and or inaccurate. Um, and they point again to that word operator code of conduct, which has that clause about bribery. Do, do you think they're in the clear on this? I don't want to speculate too much. So let me start out with that caveat. I don't think it's our place ultimately to, to judge whether something is illegal or a crime or not as journalists. Um, I think what it would be hard for them to be in the clear about is that there are multiple people that have acknowledged or admitted to either receiving or giving money. That part I think is true. When we asked about the payments to village officials. WorldCoin first said that they were unaware of the incident, then they called it isolated, and then they launched that investigation. It was actually interesting. We knew that the payments had occurred. We could not draw the clear link back to WorldCoin until they responded to us and essentially confirmed that the payments had happened. But as you know, the PR representative Anastasia Golovina told us, and I quote, it appears possible that some or all of these payments may have been for bona fide operating expenses. So we actually did not, could not say with 100% certainty that WorldCoin was behind those payments until that moment when Anastasia Golovina confirmed it to us. And what she says about it potentially being for operating expenses 
that was already denied by the individuals that we spoke to on the ground. They said that, you know, there was no school rental fee. It was not operating expenses. It was just a payment. One of the things that you've done, which is peculiar about this piece, is that you have not only included such quotes in the piece, but you've also published a couple of dozen pages of the company's direct responses. Um, Why did you think it was important to do that in this case? Yeah, we ended up publishing 25 pages of, of responses. We did that for a couple of reasons. One, just I think as an investigative journalist, it's kind of my approach to to show my work whenever I can. In this story in particular, there were two additional reasons. And one was just that there was so much that we could not include in this story that was really rich, including additional anecdotes from all of the countries and all of that. Um, and the third was this company really does not operate transparently, you know, and and we don't think that's right for a company that is taking such sensitive data from people around the world. And so we wanted to show some of that, uh, what was actually happening. And, you know, just as an example of that transparency, before we published this piece, they had been saying for many months and then many weeks to me specifically, that they were going to be open sourcing many of their software and hardware, what, how, how it was created essentially. And they actually gave me specific dates that they were going to do this that never were met, which actually echoes the experience of people on the ground that were told, this is the date that you're going to get the money. This is the date that it's going to launch. And it was always pushed back. So we wanted to shed some light into what was actually happening and, and let people see for themselves and also dig into it for themselves if, if they so chose. One of the kind of critiques it feels like that you've had in response is that this is a small Series A startup, not a big company that's well resourced with, you know, lots of policy and the rest of it. They're making it up as they go. This is a, you know, pure play Silicon Valley startup that's just getting going and you're kind of giving it the Uber scale investigative reporting treatment. Well, first of all, they are a company valuated now at $3 billion. So I would, you know, really question how small they are. But when we wrote this piece, I I think we did want to give them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. And, And what I mean by that is we actually write it kind of from their perspective in one section where we're going into how the orb uh, and how the software and, and how their plans would work and what they would actually be able to achieve if if they get there. And I, I think that perspective was really enlightening for me, even as I was reporting. And you know, all of this was us unraveling for ourselves as well. What is it they're, that they're actually doing and why? But I think what's really important to keep in mind here is that what may be just an experiment, you know, validating testing, all of these words that Silicon Valley likes to use, startups like to use, they have very real harms. And I think that's that's really the key to, to think about and to remember that these are people's lives that are potentially going to be affected because when you take someone's biometrics, um, you know, you can you can have security uh, to protect them, which they don't have uh, for these first cohorts of of people that have been scanned, but biometrics are immutable. Once you have them, you know, once you give them away, you have given them away. So I want to talk a little bit about the security issues, because I feel like you get really sort of deeply into this and you, you spoke to, you know, a number of experts. What were the types of concerns that other experts raised with you about the orb and about the software? Oh God, there were so many things and so many actually that we weren't even able to include. So let's let's start with with the orb, the software. Um, so nothing is entirely secure. And what Jeremy Clark, a professor that focuses on applied cryptography, really stressed to me was that even with the best security protections that you put into place, it can still be broken. And so it's ultimately this question of is it worth it to break something like this? And so he had this interesting point that, you know, if this company is actually very successful, uh, as it claims, and I think as, as a lot of our piece questions, but if we, if we go with that premise that they will be successful, 
the likelihood that it is going to be broken, that the orb itself is going to be uh, have its security defeated, is it, it's going to get higher if they succeed. So that that's a problem. Another thing that everyone brought up to us, though, is is really that again this lack of transparency that. WorldCoin can say that it has all of the best security protocol in place, all of the privacy pro uh, protecting protocol, but it wasn't allowing anyone to see that until I think last week when they started releasing more of, of their uh, code um, in open source format. But so that was one of the major issues that that people brought up. And, and another part that people were bringing up was that what WorldCoin is doing with the biometrics or what it aims to do once the system is fully working and in place is something called irreversible biometrics, where they would be saving the template of, of someone's biometric scans as opposed to the scan itself. Um, Jeremy Clark was really getting at it from a cryptography and hardware perspective. Another expert that we spoke to, Stephanie Shuckers, the director of the Center for Identification Technology and Research at Clarkson University, focuses on biometrics. And she pointed out that maybe their biometric plan is much safer than and, and more privacy protecting than kind of the general um, concern and outrage that, that people reacted with when this project was first announced. Because there have been advances recently, she says, in something called template security, which is when you use cryptography to transform your biometric data. So what that basically means is that what you're storing is not the biometric scan itself, but a, a hash, if you will, of it. Um, so that when it's stolen, it can't be reverse engineered back to the original biometrics. But the issue with that is that cryptographic transformation still leads to what she called performance degradation. So that basically when you're matching a new biometric data to an existing sample, you're actually taking a computer algorithm's interpretation of the data via that hasher code to another code. And so that creates room for error, um, which makes it a lot harder to match biometrics in an in encrypted space. And that's a problem because what WorldCoin is ultimately trying to do is create this identification system and identity verification system where you can ultimately use their system to prove that an account on any given network is unique, meaning it hasn't been registered before, and is human, meaning it's not a bot. So there's these questions of, okay, even if the biometrics work as they intend to, will the rest of the system work? And, and then, of course, is it actually secure? So you can kind of see, I guess, where that valuation comes from, right? I mean, they're sort of dealing with some pretty big problems. Um, and potentially, if they solve them, it could be an impactful development in the world of, of crypto or Web3. Yes, that is absolutely right. At its core, WorldCoin sees itself as, as solving three interconnected problems. One is that Web3 is not taking off because there's just not that many users. Um, Alex Blania, when I interviewed him, described WorldCoin as, quote, the biggest onboarding onto crypto and Web3 to date. It's creating that system of for proof of personhood, which is another barrier to adoption. And once these things occur, if they happen as planned, um, they're planning to allow others to use their infrastructure for their own Web3 projects, both as an identity verification system and to distribute their tokens or crypto or whatever it might be. Adi, do you think anyone on the ground in Indonesia understood any of this? No, no. Yeah, uh, absolutely not. I mean, like they just want the, you know, the cash on the coin. So without, you know, acknowledging any any of this kind of, you know, threats or something. And yeah, I think, but the most common, you know, doubt came from, you know, the local crypto community. Like many of them don't, don't believe uh, in this particular um, methods. I noticed in the company's responses, uh, there was a, a line that repeated a couple of times, this line, WorldCoin is only interested in the user's uniqueness, i.e. that they have not signed up for WorldCoin before, not their identity. Um, do you think that's accurate based on what you know about this company, that they're not really collecting identities? I'm very glad you asked that question. I think 
that it is not accurate, certainly for these now 500,000 test users. One of the major findings that we had, not just in Indonesia, but elsewhere, was really this lack of informed consent, um, including, and maybe most importantly, about what was being collected and what was being stored. So, you know, when WorldCoin first launched, they talked about an iris scan, and, and that is what they talked to people on the ground about. But they're actually taking so much more than your iris. They're taking high-resolution images of your face, your eyes, your body, and also potentially contactless Doppler radar detection of your heartbeat, breathing, and other vital signs. And again, no one on the ground really knew this. No one knew that there was more than their um, irises being being collected. So what you're saying is that the orb itself, while a camera is visible to the person who is being assessed, there is a bundle of other sensors there. Yes, there are a bundle of other sensors there. And the camera itself even is collecting far more than than what they are told. And, and what from our reporting with local orb operators, and these are kind of, you know, the lowest level folks, basically gig workers that work maybe sometimes for a weekend on shifts, something like that. They were, for the most part, people that were scanned themselves and were somehow identified by the country level orb operator as maybe someone wanting a job or someone that might be more amenable to to helping them out, etc. But I, I want to go back to to your question of of, are they interested in more than just identity? I think for this first cohort of again 500,000 people around the world that have that have been test users what they're really interested in from them is to help make their systems better whether that's the algorithms that will help identify what is a unique person to um the conditions in which the orb will operate in the best way all of their data that was being collected is being stored and is being used to train these algorithms. So everything that we said before from, you know, Dr. Shukers, that does not apply here. Raw biometric data is being stored without the consent uh, or, or knowledge, really, because how can you consent to something if you don't know what's, what's actually happening? Uh, so without the consent of people on the ground. You write in your piece, uh, I guess I connect this to that, about how the company could speak so passionately about its privacy-protecting protocols while clearly violating the privacy of so many. And you write, our interview helped us see that for WorldCoin, these legions of test users were not, for the most part, its intended end users. Rather, their eyes, bodies, and very patterns of life were simply grist for WorldCoin's neural networks. They're just a training set. That is right. And again, it's not just the bodies of these people that are training sets, it's also the orb operators themselves are training the orb in what conditions to operate in and and validating on the spot what is working or what is not, what the orb is sensing and seeing, essentially. You bring up something that I should point out that the, uh, the BuzzFeed guys also point to, which is this sort of sensibility around colonialism and sort of outside observation uh, around colonialism in this. You you bring in the voice of Pete Housen uh, from Northumbria. What did he tell you? What we were told by multiple experts, including Pete Housen, uh, who really focuses on international development and blockchain, is that these are essentially experiments that are really being imposed on these vulnerable communities that can't push back. And I, I think what was interesting about Housen's points is that, you know, I think this concept of data colonialism is something that's been floating around for a couple of years. And, and it's this idea that uh, companies in the global north are extracting data from people in the global south. That's been around and, and is kind of known. But the point that he makes is that it's even worse with crypto colonialism because crypto in, and blockchain is about decentralization. And when things are decentralized, there's very limited accountability, and that makes all of this more harmful. And, and I think, you know, going back to Indonesia and what Adi found, this company that the local orb operator registered and was conducting his operations out of, you know, when we found that company's information, Adi and I were asking each other this question of, what if someone wants to sue 
you know, who is it that they're going after? Is it WorldCoin, you know, with their offices in San Francisco and Berlin? Or is it this local company? Who do we hold accountable, even with just this one example in this one country that we have looked at? When I look at some of the rhetoric from people like Sam Altman, um, who has tweeted recently about the idea that abundance is our birthright, that you know, techno optimism is the only good solution to our current problems. That you know, right around the corner, artificial general intelligence, space colonization, fusion, solar at mass scale, an end to all human disease. You know, these are things that you know we're only a few breakthroughs away from achieving, according to to the likes of a uh, uh, Sam Altman. You know, he's clearly got extraordinary ambition and it, it seems like almost sort of limitless capital uh coming from the community there in silicon valley and from fellow investors like andreessen horowitz how does the stack up with what you're seeing on the ground there in places like indonesia in sudan how does that feel from the perspective you think of the villagers there in indonesia that you spoke to i mean what do they have this sense of uh techno optimism being the solution to their problems and and near-term opportunity for abundance? Are they bought in on that Silicon Uh, Valley vision? Well, I think that's, that will be a long way to go from now. I mean, like I cannot imagine, I mean, as far as, you know, the techno optimism goes, uh, I mean, like some of the, well, most of the people that got scanned here, like they don't even have uh, cell phones. Like they don't know what crypto is. So, that's pretty much a long way if, if you want to talk about, you know, like a being uh, in a universal best income. So, yeah, I, I think all we need is like um, literacy. In, I mean, like internet literacy. I mean, like we, we are among the lowest uh, country in the world with, uh, you know, lowest in, uh, internet uh, connection and, and, and then that uh, literacy. So well, if we want to talk about the techno optimism, then I just think that we need, um, you know, more knowledge. On that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's this there's this baseline that isn't being achieved essentially, which is necessary for true abundance, which is, as Adi was saying, like literacy and um just so many more problems that technology itself can't solve. I, I think one of the things that felt so frustrating as as we were reporting this is that the model that WorldCoin is using is a tried and true model, you know, to get all of these big advances that Sam Altman talks about, especially if, if anything, artificial intelligence or machine learning or anything like that is, is required, you also need all of this training data. And you have to get that training data from somewhere right now um, until, you know, synthetic data is, is coming around. And, and but, but for now, training data is needed. And, and so I think one of the key takeaways for, for us in writing this is just when we're talking about abundance, when we're talking about this future product, it's really a question of for who, and it's not for everyone the way that the current system is designed. If there was kind of like one thing that you wanted Blania or or Sam Altman or Mark Andreessen, somebody like that to know about what you've seen and on the ground in Indonesia, what would it be? If they listened to this podcast or they read your article, what, what would you hope they'd walk away with? Well, I just hope that they're being honest. I mean, like on the ground, uh, that's that's all I can say. I mean, like uh, right now, Indonesia doesn't have, you know, the data privacy protection law kind of thing or regulation that can address this kind of issue on data privacy. So, well, at least like they just, uh, you know, tell it uh, upfront, uh, just being honest and uh, that, that they are collecting uh, A, B, C or, or whatever. And then like, let the people decide whether they want to participate or not. So yeah, it's and and perhaps uh, being more ethical, I guess, <clears throat> on the ground. We've been in touch with Worldcoin since this piece has gone live. Um, I've also seen some of their their staffs, you know, tweets about what we've said and uh, all of that. They they have told us that they are conducting this internal investigation into what's happening in Indonesia. But I think if they were truly transparent and concerned about ethics and and privacy as they say that they are i would have expected some kind of apology for to their users to the people that spoke to us and and have brought up all of these concerns 
And they haven't done that. You know, the investigation that they talk about conducting is into an issue where there's potentially bribery, potentially something less, but that's a legal liability that they're concerned about. They have shown no interest before or since we published in the actual experiences and the concerns of people on the ground, other than saying they're isolated incidents. And and I think to me, that's the most telling piece of all of this is, is again, this they don't see their test users as people whose concerns they need to be concerned about. And and I honestly, if WorldCoin is listening, prove me wrong. Thank you to both of you. Thank you so much for these very thoughtful questions. This was great. Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.